We're talking about unity. I praise the Lord for the unity that he gives the body through his son. That is something that is so amazing. Anytime that we are not at each other's throats, that's a gift of God. We've been looking in Philippians chapter 2 about unity. We've been looking at the mindset that we have to have to be unified. We've been looking specifically at the foundation that we have in unity. We looked at that in verse 1, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, last week. We've also been looking at how to begin building the walls on that foundation, what unity looks like in its very essence in verse 2. This morning we come to verses 3 and 4, and I want to read verses 1 through 4 to give us the context and to remind us of what we studied last week as we think about unity together. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and that word if should literally be translated what? Since, since there is, since we have encouragement in Christ, since we have consolation of love, since we have fellowship of the Spirit, and since we have affection and compassion through Jesus Christ because of the Father's love and through the Spirit. Since all of those things are ours, verse 2, make my joy complete, fill my cup to overflowing by being of the same mind, thinking the same thing, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. The foundation for our unity is in verse 1. We have encouragement in Christ. We have consolation. We have been uh, had the, the God of the universe's arm, as it were, around our shoulder in the midst of our greatest need when we didn't even know it was a need and when we didn't even care that it was a need. That God loved us while we were enemies, hostile to God. Romans 5 says we were his enemies, we were sinners, and yet at the right time God died for us. We have fellowship, therefore, through the Spirit, in the Spirit, and we have affection and compassion from the God of the universe. Not because we are significant in and of ourselves. God does not look at us and say, wow, I really have to have Brian Nix on my team. He is just so amazing. He is amazing. But before he becomes a beautiful masterpiece of God's grace, he is hostile to God, an enemy of God, a God-hater at heart. And God says, I'm going to make you my friend. I'm going to make you my friend, though you were my enemy. What an amazing concept that God's love creates in us, a love for himself. We are insignificant, but as one pastor says, it is significant insignificance that the God of the universe would look upon us with favor and love. Therefore, since that is our foundation, this is how we have to live out our unity. Verse 2, we have to be of the same mind. And I just want to qualify that or clarify just a little bit from last week since we weren't able to spend too much time on it. This does not mean, though the words say, think the same things, think the same way. This does not mean that we have the exact same opinions about everything. We all become a robot and we all agree on everything. I know we don't all agree on everything. I know that there are certain people that thoroughly enjoy Christmas carols, and there are certain people in this uh, room, I won't name names, but Paul Hudson does not like Christmas carols. Does that mean that we have to get on the same page, think the same way, and because we're not thinking the same way, we are not living out in obedience what this verse is demanding? No. 
Certain people want certain teams to win today. Certain people want other teams to win today. Now, on that one, there are people that have the right opinion and people have the wrong opinion. But this does not mean that there are opinions that we all must have together in a physical, temporal sense. You can love whatever it is you want to love. You can enjoy whatever it is you want to enjoy as long as it conforms to the Word of God. What this does mean is that when it comes to our opinions and the differences that we may have, we always subject our opinions under the common goal, the common thinking, which is this. You are better than me. Your opinion is worthy of being heard. And ultimately, when thinking about the gospel, there is no way that I have any right to declare myself better than you in any way, shape, or form. Thinking the same way is not having the same opinions about everything. It is having the same opinion about one thing, and that is who we are before God and who we are before each other. We are sinners saved by grace. We are not better than each other. We are not more worthy than each other. And in fact, that's why Paul is going to go to verse 3 to encourage us how to live out this mindset of being uh, of the same mind, thinking the same thing, living in harmony with each other. We must maintain the same love, he says in verse 2. We must be united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That is glorifying the Lord, becoming more like Christ, and sharing the gospel with others. That is our purpose. That's what we think about. That's what um, brings our thinking to a unified, being of the same mind way of thinking. And therefore, verse 3, Paul dives into the enemies of unity. He dives into the enemies. He's going to give us two enemies that we see very clearly in verse 3. And then he's going to give us two remedies. We have two enemies and two ways to combat those enemies. He's going to give us two huge silver bullets to shoot at the enemies of unity. So let's pick it up in verse 3. Paul begins by writing, speaking to us and to the Philippians and speaking on the issue of unity. He now moves to what's going to stand in the way between you and being unified. What are the enemies? I'll give them to you. They're in verse 3. Enemy number one is selfishness. And enemy number two is empty conceit. Some of your Bibles may translate it vain glory. I actually think that a hybrid of those two translations is the best. Empty glory. Those are literally the Greek words. Empty glory. Selfishness is enemy number one. Empty glory is enemy number two. Paul starts by saying, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. He begins in verse 3 by saying, do nothing. Literally in the Greek, there is no verb. It's just nothing, no nothing at all from selfishness or empty conceit. We put a verb in there to make it make sense. But Paul doesn't have a verb. He just says nothing at all. And it is a double negative in the Greek, which again doesn't make sense in English for us. It would turn it into a positive. But here, the double negative is just emphasizing you can do nothing at all whatsoever from selfishness or from empty conceit. Nothing at all. Nothing, no nothing at all from selfishness or empty conceit. I love that there is no qualification except when your view really is better, except when you really should be loved. There's no qualification. 
So there should literally be nothing that we ever do in our entire lives from selfishness or empty conceit. And I love the fact that Paul does not specify what the issue in the church is, what, what is being struggled through that's causing disunity. He does not say, do nothing from selfishness over your views of how the church should be run. Do nothing from empty conceit over your ideas of what the color of the carpet should be. He doesn't specify what the issue is. Obviously, God has a purpose for every single word, every single letter in his word. So I don't think that this is a coincidence that this purpose or, or the issue that's going on is not specified. It's open-ended. There's no qualification for any time when we should not live this out. And you can apply this to any setting whatsoever in your life. Nothing, no nothing from selfishness. First enemy, enemy number one of unity is selfishness is enemy number one of unity. We first saw this word in Philippians chapter 1, verse 17. It's translated selfish ambition. Verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. It's a word that originally meant a day laborer, one who works to earn money, one who works for a wage. But then it grew and it evolved, as words tend to do in language, it evolved to mean someone who only works for a wage or a price, somebody who only works to get paid. And then it evolved a little bit more, speaking about somebody who's only doing something to get credit, only doing something to get praise, only doing something to be noticed. So you can see how selfish ambition begins to grow in this word. Somebody that's working or doing something only that people would notice, look, and say, you're amazing. And finally, this word, as it evolved, we find it in extra-biblical Greek writings back in the New Testament times, speaking of people that only look out for themselves. This word was used a lot to speak of politicians, people that just want to get to the top and they don't care who they have to roll over to get there. This is someone who only looks out for themselves, and it, it's an attitude. Selfishness is an attitude that breeds in the heart. It doesn't just start externally. It's a heart issue, and it's an issue that grows from desiring to build yourself up and tear others down. What does God say about selfishness? Go to Romans. Romans chapter 2. What does God say about selfishness? We think, oh, it's a petty sin. It's something that we all struggle with. It's got to be one of Jerry Bridges' respectable sins. This has just got to be one of those. Everybody's going to struggle with it. And so why do we even try and fight it? Because we're all going to struggle with it. So let's just get along. Let's not worry so much about trying to fight it off. Romans chapter 2, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, this is God speaking, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness of judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious, there's our word, and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, what is in store for them? What does it say? Wrath and indignation. God does not turn a blind eye to our selfish hearts, to our selfish attitudes. God opposes 
selfish people. Turn to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. James chapter 3 verse 14 says this, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, there's our word again, in your heart, doesn't even have to be coming out. It breeds in your heart. Do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic, selfish people who claim to have wisdom and claim to know it all. That's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, verse 16, there is disorder and every evil thing. If we are selfish internally, it will grow externally and ultimately it will lead to factions, division, disorder, and every kind of evil thing. Selfishness leads to every kind of evil thing. This is not something to be trifled with. We don't just look and go, well, we all struggle with it, so it can't be that bad. Paul says nothing, no, nothing at all from selfishness. A heart that says, I want to be noticed, I want to be seen, I want to be praised, I want to be honored, and I want to build myself up and tear everybody else down. When the word selfishness, this is kind of a funny little Greek tidbit, but when the word selfishness is said in the plural, which we don't really say, selfishnesses, when it's said in the plural in Greek, it's actually never translated in your Bible, selfishnesses, for obvious reasons. It's translated disputing or disorder. It's translated that way in two places, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20, and in Galatians chapter 5, verse 20. What's in Galatians chapter 5? Fruit of the Spirit. So the fruit of the Spirit is the opposite of selfishness. The fruit of the flesh involves selfishness, but it's not just selfish singular. It's plural selfishnesses, which is translated disputes, because that's where selfishness invariably leads. It grows out. When I'm looking out for myself and I don't care about you and all I care about, even if I have to walk over you, is being noticed more than you and being cared for more than you and being exalted more than you, then of course disputes are going to grow. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I just want to do a, a little mini survey through some passages that deal with selfishness and disputes that arise from selfishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. These are familiar verses to you. Verse 10, Paul writes, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. Stop fighting. Everybody agree and don't have divisions. But instead, that you be made complete in the same mind. Almost the same Greek word that we found in chapter 2 of Philippians. Not quite. And in same judgment, you look upon things with discernment in the same way. Why am I saying this? Verse 11, because I've been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul. You remember this part of this text. I am of Paul. I side with him. I am of Apollos. I side with him. I am of Cephas or Peter, and I, I side with him. And then the people that just take the cake, I'm of Jesus, I'm of Christ. You guys are all of human people. I'm of the Son of God, thank you very much. Paul says, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
these divisions grew out of a selfishness in their heart. And really what probably was going on, a lot of people just kind of stop at thinking that some people said, I prefer Paul's preaching, or I prefer Jesus's preaching style, or I prefer Peter, or I prefer Apollos. A lot of people just kind of stopped there. But I think it was further. I think it was deeper. The issue is deeper than that. I think the issue is that people were saying the nuances that Paul preaches in his doctrine, sovereign grace, sovereign election, those nuances, I don't hear as much in Apollos. And I kind of prefer Apollos on this area because I think God's probably a little bit more loving than what Paul's saying. So I'm going to go with Apollos' doctrine, not Paul's. This is an issue of divisive doctrines where people are starting to grab on to, I prefer this style of viewing the Bible, or I prefer this style of teaching, or I prefer this style of hearing a different doctrine preached. That's why Paul says, look, I'm not crucified for you, and Christ hasn't been divided. We are all seeing the same thing, maybe from different angles, but the bottom line is you should never do something, hear something, or try to do something in such a way that you will create factions and splits and schisms. That should never be the case, but a selfish heart leads to that end. One pastor says it this way, if you find yourself thinking, it's me and my group or my thinking against so-and-so, then you're flirting with factions and disputes and you show the root of your own selfish heart. Now, of course, there's a time to say, that doctrine's wrong, this doctrine is right, and we believe what the truth says. But within different groups that hold the Bible high and exalt the truth of God's Word and preach it as such, maybe though we might have different doctrinal issues with other cults that we for sure say that's wrong, we might have different opinions on how to communicate things, how to dress, how to speak, what songs to sing, what songs not to sing. And we shouldn't be disputing and causing factions. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from selfishness. Do nothing from selfishness. Can I just ask our own hearts internally as a church and then individually? What is it as a church that we already have opinions about that we would be willing to fight somebody on? What is it as a church? Maybe something that you don't like about Christ Bible Church. Maybe some areas that you don't quite see eye to eye on certain things. Are those things biblical things or are those things selfish heart coming out? Are those things selfishness that will lead to dispute and division, opinions that we shouldn't be holding higher than somebody else's? What are the typical ones that we might struggle with, typical opinions of song selection, sermon length, what we're preaching through, um, what we wear what we don't wear, what we talk about. Will we ever let something so petty in the grand scheme of things divide us? I pray that if we live according to Philippians chapter 2, we will not. But individually, can I, can I plead with you? Go home in a spirit of humility and ask the people that are in your, in your home this question. Where does my selfishness tend to come out. Notice what we're implying right off the bat. We already are selfish. Don't ask, am I ever selfish? <laughs> Give yourself the benefit of the doubt that you always are selfish. And can I ask for humble conversations? You go humbly. If it's a spouse, talk to your spouse. If you have kids, talk to your kids. 
Ask, is there, is there a way? What's the way that my selfishness shows itself the most? And can I plead with the person who's receiving that question to be humble and gracious in their response? And go back and forth and talk about this. Where does my selfishness come out the most at home? Where does my selfishness come out the most at work? Ask your coworkers. Hey, I'm, I'm learning in God's word about selfishness, and I know that I struggle with it on so many different levels, but what are the ways that it shows itself when I'm here working with you? What a beautiful inroad to the gospel you will have as you say, I want to be like Jesus. I want to be like my Lord and Savior who was not selfish. Enemy number one is selfishness. It's an enemy that we need to fight against, and we'll get the formula of fighting against it in a few words here. Enemy number two is empty conceit. Paul says, nothing, no, nothing at all from selfishness or from empty conceit. Again, literally, empty glory. Vain glory, empty glory. Two Greek words put together to make this sentence or this, these two words, empty glory. What is empty glory? I think the best way to describe empty glory is the modern-day self-esteem movement. Um, I've, I have the privilege now of being able to teach at, uh, two Bible classes at Heritage um, at this school. It's been an amazing blast. I absolutely love it. And these, these students have been pumped into them self-esteem movement. So much so where they tried to use the Bible a couple weeks ago to say that if they believed enough, they could do anything that they set their mind to. And I said, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Because the bottom line is, you can't do anything you set your mind to. You cannot, as hard as you want, as hard as you try, you cannot grow wings. I would love to grow wings and fly. I believe with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, I have faith that I can fly. People used to do that in, in the New Testament time. Um, that's why Satan's temptation of Jesus was not a new temptation. Throw yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple and you can fly or angels will catch you if you, if you can't fly. People used to do that. People back then who claimed to be Messiah and said, look, I'll prove to you I'm Messiah. I'm going to jump off and I will either fly or angels will catch me. None of them ever flew and no angels ever caught them. It just ended up a bloody mess at the bottom of the temple, at the, the temple foundation. The world has just pumped into especially the younger generation. And obviously, I know what they're trying to say. I know what they're trying to say. But say it in, you know, a remember the Titans way or a Rudy way. Say it in a way where it's like, you know what? If you want to go to college, let's try and fight for college. Like, let's not, we're not flying off the Grand Canyon here growing wings. Let's, we can do attainable things. Let's set our mind to that. But the world is just, you can do anything you set your mind to. I'm sorry, let's, let's just be honest that's empty glory. You think you're such hot stuff that you really think you can do anything you set your mind to. The self-esteem movement destroys people because it gives them a greater picture of themselves than what reality says. So much so that in the academic world, I think it was 10,000 students who were polled as to what they thought their grade was in their classes. I think it was 97% of the 10,000 students all gave higher projections of their grades than were reality. Oh, I think I'm getting a B. You're getting an F. <laughs> wow, how could I be doing so poorly? Self-esteem movement. You have empty glory. You think you're way better than you really are. 
Very simply, it's thinking too highly of yourself. One pastor went through um, evidences of vainglory, evidences of pride in your heart that show themselves in vainglory. A guy, a Puritan man by the name of Richard Baxter, he said it this way. Do you find yourself challenging others? Is that a pattern of your life? Do you believe that you are right about everything? And will you gladly fight and debate anyone who thinks otherwise? If so, my friend, you have empty glory. You have vain glory. Are your convictions or standards more godly than everyone else's? Are your interpretations more biblical than others? Are your preferences, your favorite music or your favorite whatever, more important than others? Is your personality more pleasurable and enjoyable than others? Are your views of everything and anything more accurate than others? Are your plans and ideas, are they much more practical than others? Is your heart more mature than others? Are your spiritual gifts more useful than others? My friend, if these are true of you, you have vain glory. I love how Richard Baxter gives those questions to cut to the heart. In the words of Romans chapter 11, verse 25, those who are wise in their own estimation ultimately lead to destruction. And they ultimately, in that passage, in that context, they lead to a misinterpreting of God's words because they think they know God's ways better than God knows his own ways. Or Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. And this is the difficulty with empty glory. It is self-deceiving. We don't even know when we're struggling with empty glory. So again, I plead with you, go home today and ask your spouse or your kids or whoever is in your home with you, do you ever see me with vain glory, with empty glory, thinking more highly of myself than I should, or presenting my views and my opinions as right and everybody else, how could they possibly have that view? I know if I were to ask my wife that, the answer would be, yeah, mm mm-hmm, yeah. I hear that a lot. Going through uh, studying for this sermon, I talked a lot less this week. I just spoke less words because a lot of my words come from a selfish and empty glory heart. Obviously, the root, the foundation of selfishness or empty glory is pride. That's pride. James chapter 4 talks about what causes quarrels and strife among you. Is it not your own desires that wage war in your heart and they fight? And you want something so bad that you'll fight somebody for it. You will bring disunity. You will bring a a divisive, factious heart and create those schisms over anything you want because your way is the best way. It's the right way. Pride is forever the enemy of unity. Pride grows these two enemies of selfishness and empty glory. But Jonathan Edwards, I think, said it best. Pride is the worst viper in the heart It is the first sin that ever entered the universe. It lies lowest of all in the foundation of the whole building of sin. It's the foundation of the whole building of sin. It's the most secret, deceitful, and unsearchable in its ways of working of any lust whatsoever. It's so deceptive. It's ready to mix with everything, and nothing is so hateful to God, contrary to the spirit of the gospel, or of so dangerous consequence than pride. 
And there is no one sin that does so much to let the devil into the hearts of the saints and expose them to his delusions. It said it was the first sin ever to enter the universe. Turn to Isaiah chapter 14. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 14. This is also a parallel passage of Ezekiel chapter 28. And it's a description of Satan's fall from glory when he set himself with a prideful heart in vain glory, in empty glory, he set himself to be above God. That's ultimately what he's going to tempt Adam and Eve with. If you eat of this tree, you will be like God. That sounds pretty good. I want to be like God, so I'll eat of that tree. Or I'll make a cult that says, like the Mormons do, you can become little gods. It's all from Satan's first fall when he said, I want to be like God. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 how you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have been weakened. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, listen to Satan's words. He spoke these in his heart. He said, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, above the angels of God. I'm going to raise above all these different members of God's kingdom. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. And then he says this, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the who? Most high. Go quickly to Genesis chapter 14. Why does Satan say, I will make myself like the most high? Of all of the almost 400 names for God that there are in the Bible, Satan chooses most high. Why does he say, I want to be greater than the Most High? The first time we see this title for God, this name for God used, is in Genesis chapter 14. Pick it up in verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a high priest of God Most High. He blessed him and he said this, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. So God Most High, his name, God Most High, underneath you could put possessor of heaven and earth. Satan said, I want to be God Most High because I want to possess everything. I want to be the possessor of heaven and of earth. And every time that we struggle with pride, specifically as it grows through our hearts to selfishness or to empty, vain glory, we too are saying, I want to be the possessor of heaven and earth. We're saying with Satan, I want to be like God. I want to be greater than God. And I want to be the possessor of heaven and of earth. Richard Baxter goes on in his book, The Reformed Pastor, to speak of ways that we can tell if we're struggling with pride itself. He says, do you struggle with excessively talking about yourself and your accomplishments? Do you compare your gifts, talents, jobs, educations, and even your ministry against those of others? Do you expect that people will serve you because of the position that you hold? That doesn't have to be a position in ministry or in work. It could be a position in your household. Do you act like the resident authority on every topic? Do you, are you easily offended when things don't go your way? Do you see yourself as superior to others and your views as more practical than others? Do you see your experiences as being more valuable than anyone else's? And here's a Here's a very challenging one. Are you critical of the sins of others 
while you tolerate your own. How do we fight against pride and thereby fight against selfish ambition or vain conceit? Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to turn here first and then we will quickly finish with Philippians chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter gives remedy for a prideful heart. Verse 5. You younger men, likewise, subject yourselves to the elders. You do it. Subject yourself. And all of you, younger men, older men, younger women, older women, all of you put on, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, you must humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. And how do we do this? We do this by casting all of our anxiety on him because he cares for us. Peter says we must humble ourselves if we are to have unity, if we're to be like Christ. Turn back over to Philippians chapter 2. We'll end here. Paul speaks about the two enemies of unity by giving us selfishness and empty glory. But then right after empty conceit, right after empty glory in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, but, but instead of this, do this. So instead of living with the enemies of unity, being selfish in your heart and having empty glory, instead of that, Fight those enemies with these two enormous silver bullets. Number one, regard one another as more important than yourselves with humility of mind. The first weapon against the enemy of unity is regarding one another as more important than yourselves. And you do this with humility of mind, literally with lowliness of mind. Instead of vainglory, thinking more highly of yourself than you should, have lowliness of heart and of mind. Don't think so highly of yourself. And how will it play itself out? This passage always frustrated me as a kid growing up. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. One translation I memorized it in was as better than yourself. And I always struggle with this because logically it didn't make sense. My sister can read so much faster than I will ever be able to read. She can just put a book in front of a fan, read it, and know everything that's in it. How can she appropriately esteem me better at reading than herself? That's logically not true. I'm a better basketball player than my sister primarily because she doesn't play basketball, so... That helps. How can I logically, with a genuineness in my heart, esteem her a better basketball player than myself? This always frustrated me. It didn't make sense until I started studying it a little bit deeper. One pastor says it this way, and I love this. I think it's so helpful. The point of this passage regarding one another as more important than myself the point is not what others are. The point is what you count or regard or consider others to be. And the focus is not on how they read or how they do math or any skill or any trait whatsoever. 
The focus is, will you count, regard, or consider them as worthy of your help and encouragement? Not, are they worthy, but will you count them, regard them, or consider them as worthy? So I was missing the point on two different levels. Number one, it's not about what the person does, because then you would not be graciously with the love of Jesus Christ regarding one another is more important than yourself. You would be regarding them based on who they are and what they do. That's not grace. So it's not about what they do. It's about what you count them to be. It's not about a physical doing. It's about what you consider them to be. That word regard in verse 3 is a very technical, specific word that means calculating, assessing everything that it is to be that person and going down the list of who they are and what they've done and everything about them and then making the verdict. It was used in a judge and jury setting. It's, it's weighing the evidence and then putting the gavel down and coming to a verdict saying they are worthy of me showing love to them, or specifically, they are worthy of being more important than me, exalted above me. Why? Because of who they are or what they've done? No, because of who they are in Christ and what Christ has done for them. If they are a brother or sister in Christ, you are to love them as such. If they are an enemy of the gospel, you are to love them. I heard one pastor say one time, if you're struggling to love your wife, live out the command that says, um, love one another as I have loved you. And some people come back and say, but you don't know my wife. She's not really my friend. She's kind of my enemy. And he says, well, too bad. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you have to love every single person. You regard them. You assess them based on the gospel. And in doing so, you exalt them above yourself. You serve them. I think the greatest picture of this is obviously in John 13. The greatest physical picture of this is Jesus washing his disciples' feet. He regarded Judas as more important than himself because he washed Judas's feet. Was it because Judas was worthy of it or deserving it of it? No, and none of the disciples were. Do we regard one another as more important than ourselves because they really are better than us in every way, shape, or form? Maybe not. Maybe you're more gifted in certain areas than they are, but the bottom line is they are a graciously loved, cherished son or daughter of the Most High. And you dare not look upon them with disdain, but instead serve them. Jesus commanded that. The new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, as I have loved you, dying for you, and in this practical picture of washing your feet, you need to love one another in that way. So silver bullet number one is regarding one another as more important than yourself with humility of mind, with lowliness of mind. Go down, stoop yourself lower than them and regard them. Go through the gospel and remind yourself that they are cherished by the most high God. Yes, we are all insignificant, but remember it's significant insignificance. And if the God of the universe cherishes that person next to you that maybe you're struggling to love, calculate how Jesus has loved them, calculate what Jesus loves about them, what gifts he has given to them, and how he has used them for his glory, not because they're awesome, but because he's awesome, and regard them. The second thing is in verse 4, the second silver bullet, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. 
Another way we could say this, just attaching it to that, that first silver bullet of regarding one another. The way we could attach it is just say, serve one another. The way this looks tangibly is serving. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Serve. Serve. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. Come alongside people. Serve them tangibly. So, two enemies of unity. Selfishness in our heart that breeds contempt and disputing and divisions. And empty glory, thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought. One of the ways that we combat that, regarding one another as more important than ourselves, exalting them above ourselves with humility of mind. And secondly, looking out for the interests of others above your own. You still look out for your own interests. It's like the greatest commandment, right? Love, love one another in the same way that you love yourself. You already do that. You don't need to be told to love yourself anymore. You already take care of yourself. You take care of others around you. And what's the greatest example of this? That's what we're going to study in the weeks ahead in verses 5 all the way through uh, the middle of the chapter. Jesus Christ. In the words of Isaac Watts, and I just want to end by singing his hymn, When I survey, when I look upon the wondrous cross in all of its horrific nature and all of its beauty, when I look upon the wondrous cross, when I survey, when I stare at it, on which the Prince of Glory died, on which which the one who did not need to come for us, he could have just left us and let us die, He's the Prince of Glory. He left so much in heaven to become a man. My richest gains I count but what? I count but loss. Whatever I have that I hold dear, it's nothing compared to what he let go of for me. And I pour contempt on all of my what? On all of my pride. Father, I pray that we would be unified in our very hearts, in the essence of what Christ Bible Church is, who we are as a church. Make us unified as we stare at the enemies of unity and we fight against them through Christ-like humility. And as we close by surveying the wondrous cross together, I pray that you would be glorified to remind us of what it costs for Jesus to come, to purchase us, to die for us, to love us.